Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I am here with Lou Isos Irakleos. Hi, uh, Richard. He, hi, he is the chair um, of strategy and organization at Warwick Business School. He's also an associate fellow at Green Templeton College inside Business School. Lou Isos, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, now I'm I'm extremely pumped to be uh, sh- sharing this hour with you, and we're going to take a delve. Um, wow, I'm not sure people can read that. The book is Janos Strategy. Uh, of course, it's a, a Roman god. So yeah, it comes through better on uh, <laughs> your side there for people watching uh, with a picture of Janos himself there. And so tell us, um, yeah, a little bit about the backstory that led you to writing this this book. So for many years now, I've been doing in-depth case studies of organizations as a teacher and student of strategy. I believe we need to try and understand not only the game plan, but how do companies try to put that game plan into operation? And that means looking more deeply into functional strategies, um, organizational decisions about design, about values, about processes, about people. Uh, So I've started doing these studies um, since my PhD that finished in 1997. Uh, When I was looking at Singapore Airlines and my colleagues and I wrote a book about this, we were very surprised that Singapore Airlines could win so many service awards, but at the same time be so efficient. Uh, We looked at... um, cents per available seat kilometer, which is a common metric in airlines, and compared it with peer airlines in Asia, in Europe, in America. And we realized that Singapore Airlines, for the kind of service it was giving, it was and is incredibly efficient. So I realized that classical strategic thought could be questioned, could be challenged. Uh, Michael Porter says you have to decide between differentiation or a claim of uniqueness, say high innovation, high quality, or low cost. Try to be the lowest cost um, company in your segment and then make another decision. Do you go for mass market or niche market? And he said you cannot do both. It will lead to confusion, confusion in your messages to the market, confusion of your employees, etc. But companies such as Singapore Airlines, and I found later when I looked at Apple, Toyota, and other organizations, they can actually occupy these strategic positions that had been considered distinct or very difficult to combine. And indeed, Michael Porter said it was possible to actually do both. Say you have a process innovation that helps you be very efficient and at the same time sustain really high quality. You could do it, but he said it would be temporary because others would copy what you do. And so your advantage wouldn't last long in in those terms. But we see these organizations with this type of advantage that lasts for decades. Right. So I decided to try and write this book and talk about these companies and also talk about how can they do it. And I discovered uh, six principles through multiple case research or comparative case research. And I was looking for an evocative metaphor to uh, give this message. And originally I was thinking of quantum strategy uh, because at the quantum level, particles can be at two points at the same time, something that's illogical and impossible at the normal level of reality. But at the quantum level, there's potentialities rather than realities. And something could be at more than one place at the same time. So I was going to use this as a metaphor, but realized that uh, Janus strategy or the god Janus gave the message more clearly than that. Right. Okay. So, so introduce us to Janus. Uh, who, who is he? So Janus is the Roman god of transitions, of uh, doorways, of the past and the future. He's a liminal god because he can look simultaneously 
um, backwards and forwards in two opposite directions at the past and the future. And in a way, this is a skill that strategists need. And we can talk about that a little later, but Janus, interestingly, uh, in the Roman pantheon is the god of gods. If you wanted to talk to Zeus, you had to go via Janus. And there was a special priest, uh, the, the highest priest would do the rites of Janus, which shows us, I think, how important this sort of understanding was um, in the Roman tradition. And we find similar ideas. And yeah, he's a god that's probably not so sort of doesn't shine so brightly in our consciousness, does he, Janos? We don't hear about him so much as, say, Zeus. Well, not the god himself, but the human condition, if you like, um, is characterized by the Janus Janus features, if you like. And and that's why, uh, as I mentioned in the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there are thousands of novels written a year. why is Jekyll and Hyde in our consciousness from a century ago? Is it because it's such a riveting story? No, it is a good story, but it's because it talks to the, it speaks to the human condition, the perennial pool of opposites that characterizes people, characterizes organizations, characterizes reality. Right. And and if that's true, then why why do you think it is that perhaps people thinking strategically or just in general tend to shy away of from holding mm. opposites in, uh, in mind? Because because it's uncomfortable. Um, the idea of cognitive dissonance, um, first studied by Leon Festinger, a psychologist, um, says that when there is information that contradicts what we believe and the effect is even bigger when we have emotions attached to what we believe. We either dis- discount the information or we um, try to reinterpret it in a way that agrees with what we already believe, both of which are disastrous for strategists because strategists need to seek disconfirming information uh, in order to probe the assumptions of their strategic decisions in order to see far, see what's coming, um, because strategy obviously needs to be suitable for different futures. And its strategy is both about the present and the future. Um, and, and so uh, strategic alignment has been a key concept in strategy, and it's a simple concept. And in the book, I talk about a model I call the ESCO model, environment, which is what is happening outside, competitors, um, technology, uh, regulations, everything that's happening outside, environment, strategy, core competencies, and organization. So those four classes of things need to be aligned. And we can't get away from that. We need it. And strategists are taught, they are trained to think that way in their MBA or other executive development that they do. But um, what, um, what we need to do is to incorporate, in addition to alignment, looking at the present, everything, all ducks in a row, we must also think of what else do we need to look into the future, to look at how we should be developing. Um, I know we are recording, but I'm just um, making sure it is all good. Yep, coming back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's yep, good. yep. So yes, yes. Let's go ahead. Yeah. Um... So, so it's not just about lining everything up in in wonder, which I suppose is sort of singularly thinking. We must have this singular goal, and we must line up around this singular goal. Uh, is what you're saying that actually we consider we might have multiple goals simultaneously, and then sort of allowing that contradiction to to remain mm. in our minds? 
Well, contradictions could be generative because they force you to think of new ways of doing things. And we are not talking about any kind of goal that we might imagine. That would be a strategic disaster. There are particular contradictions that strategists have to keep in mind. And for example, if we think about global strategy, we have the contradiction between local customization and global standardization. You need both. You need local customization so your product or service is suitable for local demand so that it doesn't fall foul of regulations, so that you can draw on local networks. But at the same time, if you operate in 80 countries and all you have is local customization, you will quickly go bankrupt. The reason being that you'll be uncompetitive in terms of cost. You need to have synergies and that's where global standardization comes in. You need to have synergies, for example, in key functions such as purchasing, um, such as um, organization development as a central resource that can be shared um, or anything else, design or other things that normally are quite pricey, but if you can share them, the average cost falls. So there are particular contradictions, not just any goal that a strategist might think. Right. Although I'm just thinking of a recent podcast guest who made massive savings by radically decentralizing their organization. Um, mm. But so there may be counter examples, but I think your broader point of how can we, you know, how can we hold the con- a seeming contradiction in mind? Yeah. Like how can we be global and local yes. rather than how do we be global or how do we be local? Yeah. So um, these principles, they are more like guidelines and um, there's no silver bullet here and all of them have to be adapted depending on what kind of organization you have, what kind of product or service or the economy, the particular economics of your business. And there may be savings to be had by decentralizing in certain situations. I mean, that's why we have, if you like, the wisdom of leadership. If everything could be taught in a textbook, then there would be, you know, no reason to pay CEOs in the millions, right? Yeah, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's another bone of contention. Have you seen the Kahneman research on the, uh, the I, effective I, CEO performance yeah. on the yeah. business performance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've seen a lot of pieces of research that say that executive compensation doesn't have too much um, impact on performance, but um, you you have to look at things in a broader way. It's not just how much you pay the CEO that has an impact on performance. It's, it's many things. And if you want to have people who are able to do the job in an effective way, then you have to pay the market rate or you have to take a chance on um, younger people who maybe have not had that much exposure and appoint them and see what happens. Yeah, no, no, yeah. But it's that, that in some ways, that's not, I don't think that's material to the point you're making. But I think the point you're making is, you know, wisdom matters, right? Wisdom is is important. And one of the keys to wisdom, that I think you, you're you um, elucidating in this book is, you know, this idea of being able to hold opposites in one's mind at the same time. Hmm. And to, yeah, and to allow, and now that to be a generative engine, right, of, of ways of thinking about your organization. Yes, and, and I was very happy to discover Albert Rothenberg's research. He's an emeritus professor at Harvard, a psychiatrist. And over the last 50 years, he's been studying exactly this point that he calls Janusian thinking. And he studied Nobel Prize winners, accomplished artists, successful writers, novelists. And every time he discovered this um, four-step process. In, in, it's described in terms of steps, I think, for, for the purposes of developing or stating a theory. In reality, it's much more messy. 
but he found four characteristics, if you like, in this uh, Janusian thinking. Yeah, well, yeah, so, please do, because so, I think, you know, I think there are people will be like, okay, how do I think so, like this if it's going to help me improve my business? Well, the first one is deceptively simple. And it's the motivation to make a difference. So he was studying Janusian thinking and creativity. And every Nobel Prize winner that he spoke and every artist and every writer, they first really wanted to make a difference. And this sounds simple to say, but it's really important. And when, when you say if you're an HR director and you're interviewing candidates, you're not just looking at their CV, what they've done or their degree, you're trying to gauge um, do they really want to make a difference to this organization? And incidentally, that's how venture capitalists decide how to give money. It's not how perfect the plan is. If you look at the researches, what they think of the people who are pitching, are these people going to spend sleepless nights until they make this a success or not? And, and, and that, um, I think gives them the greatest clue. So the motivation to make a difference. And um, um, the, the second one is what he called a deviation from accepted practice. So all of these Nobel Prize winners, scientists, they knew what was the dominant paradigm. But if they wanted to do something different to make a, a groundbreaking contribution, they would need to think about things differently. And of course, the dominant paradigm is there because it helps cumulative research. If you know how things have been researched, you can add to it. It's like adding a brick in the wall. But what if you want to make a new wall? You have to start somewhere else. So the, the deviation from accepted practice or the accepted paradigm. Um, and um, the, the third part of this is the process of cognitive insights, the idea that if you hold to opposing concepts simultaneously, not, uh, not in a row, not think about A first and then think about B, but try to think about, about them simultaneously, then you reach a new way of looking at things. Not always, but it's something that could reach... Um, that could lead to new insights. And um, in the book, I give you the examples of um, Einstein, Darwin, Bohr. And uh, of course, Rothenberg gives tens of examples in his books and articles, but uh, Einstein described one of his happiest moments, that's his own words uh, in, in his own uh, unpublished papers. Uh, one of his uh, happiest moments was when he imagined that uh, a man falling in a vacuum, uh, if, if he took some things out of his pocket, they would fall at exactly the same rate because it's a vacuum. So if, if it's a feather or if it's steel, it falls at exactly the same rate. So for that person, it would look like they were stationary. In the same way that we are on earth, he's moving you know, hundreds of miles an hour, but we think it's stationary because from our perspective it is, but someone from space wouldn't think so. so. So Einstein realized that whether something is stationary or not depends on your perspective. And that, that was a key insight for him to develop relativity theory. When Darwin read Malthus, Malthus's treatise um, uh, suggesting... Um, that with geometric progression in population, the food supply wouldn't last and pretty soon we'd have mass deaths. So Darwin realized that, uh, well, that's one way to look at it, uh, but the struggle for survival could have positive consequences of adaptation. So either lack of adaptation and death or adaptation and survival from the same source, the struggle uh, for survival. And, and that's, that's why he developed his own um, theory in the origin of the species, the, the theory of evolution. 
and yeah. uh, so there are many many examples of that and I was thinking you've got a big interest in in space travel and you know, some of your books have been in those areas and aeronautics mm-hmm. um, who comes to mind is Elon Musk in this example is he somebody that yes. fits this pattern do you think I'm sure even though even though nobody has had much access to actually study Elon Musk and his strategic decisions I mean he is uh, in a way accessible via Twitter he likes to project his thinking he did give a few interviews but in order to understand if he's a Janusian thinker one would need to discuss a bit more more specifically about these things but his record is exceptional in in any case and his you know his organizations I mean, how do you measure organizational success? I was going to say SpaceX is successful. It's successful in in technical terms, in accomplishing what it needs to accomplish. But Elon Musk hasn't decided to list it for very good reasons. And he doesn't want SpaceX to be at the mercy of um, investors who will demand quarterly returns because that's not how you accomplish decades long projects to have investors every quarter so yeah. so um so elon musk is using a lot of his own money from the sale of paypal in the past a lot of his own investments uh to to fund spacex and and a lot of contracts from nasa uh to to fund what they are doing um but but, but his his organizations have successful in you know using different measures yeah and i was just thinking in two of those phases seem to apply the he seems to want to make a difference right he seems to be somebody who's driven sure. by more than For just sure. financials yes and uh also that he's prepared to step away from dominant modes of thinking certainly in spacex right he sort of he almost you know took took from what i understand of that process he took a step to the side of how things were done and bottom up um sought to to sort of think through yes. himself yes. independently. Yes. I mean, we, we have to be careful to also acknowledge the contribution of, of NASA and existing knowledge because Elon Musk does hire a, a lot of maybe retired scientists or scientists from NASA or scientists who just want to, you know, go into the uh, commercial space sector. Uh, and, and so there is a lot of accumulated knowledge that he draws on, but on other things, he and his team do think differently. And uh, we can think of the example of uh, reusable rockets um, and how they managed to do it. And, and you know, NASA and others have been trying for decades, but Elon Musk and his team thought, thought about it uh, differently. Um, they, whereas in normal thinking, and if you are a pilot and, and you want to make a landing, you have to approach in a stable um, speed and ensure that you can abort if you need to. And that um, takes a, a, a lot of fuel. And that's why reusable rockets were not developed because under the current paradigm, you couldn't have enough fuel to go and come back and land it. It would be difficult to lift off. So what Elon Musk thought is, how can we land with as little fuel as possible? And so the, the, the rocket comes down full speed and they've calculated what's the last possible moment that we can actually light the engines and sort of stop the, the, the fall and then land and they did it by thinking differently and that's a game changer in space travel because once we have reusable rockets the cost of launch falls by a a number of multiples and if the cost of launch falls it means that we can have a lot of services and, and products that were too expensive in the past where when we had to build a rocket for a single launch I didn't realize that. <laughs> so, yes, may, maybe you're right. I think I will think more about Elon Musk and as a Janusian thinker because the first two elements are certainly there. And then this 
thinking differently. And if I can read up a bit, if he talked about it somewhere, how the idea came, that could be a good um, good example, I think. Mm. And I'm thinking from your your own experience, um, do you have, can you think of where you've applied Genusian thinking, Genusian thinking, and it's had an impact? Like what's your, been your own experience with this in your, in your own evolution? Yeah. I mean, as, um, as a professor, we always want to um, synergize what we do. That is, uh, and if we frame it in terms of exploitation and exploration, these are terms that um, were developed by um, the behavioral scientist, James March. And he said that we must balance exploration or looking for new ways, looking for new avenues, looking at the future with exploitation of current resources and capabilities. And as, well, this is relevant to any organization, but as professors is very relevant because, for example, whenever we sit down to write, that is exploiting, if you like, a current knowledge and capabilities, we always have to think in a generative way because if you write something that's been said before or where there's nothing new, um, then you, it'd be difficult to publish in a scientific journal. So you simultaneously have to draw on established knowledge, but somehow push it forward, or in other words, exploit and explore at the same time. Or when we do a journal review, um, that is a significant part of our lives, especially at the more senior levels, when we serve on editorial boards of journals, we have to see new research and recommend whether it should be published or not. And typically we recommend either revise and resubmit and it goes uh, over two or three rounds and it could be two years before it's accepted. Uh, or we recommend rejection and the best journals in management will reject 92% or 93% of submitted work. So they will take to publication only maybe 7% or, or so of submitted work. But um, the point I'm making is that when we do a review, we draw on our established knowledge and, and capabilities of the field. But at the same time, if it's a good paper, we also learn, it's, if it's the leading edge of research, we learn of new frontiers, we learn what research is happening out there. And maybe we get some insights for how we advance our own work. Uh, and so again, there's exploitation and exploration uh, at the same time. Um, when we teach, I learn a lot of things by engaging capable students, executive MBAs, MBAs, uh, senior managers in companies, I learn if my theories stand their ground in the face of practice. And, and again, we have exploitation. For me to get in front of a group of very senior people and talk, I have to exploit my knowledge and capabilities. And by engaging them, I explore. I learn where my theory may be weak where are there loose ends can i add anything and so in um, you know in inner work as 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 professors as thinkers i think this is essential right right and is it something that you've sort of had to sharpen as a as a skill or as a way of thinking over time or definitely definitely it's a learning process and i mean it's a perennial question in leadership, are leaders born or made? If we believed they were born, there'd be no point in executive development and leadership development. Of course, some leaders may be born, they may have some traits, but those traits may lead them to disastrous decisions. Um, you need many things to be a good leader and one, you know, apart from certain traits, you know, the, the ability to see the big picture, 
and the operational implications, the ability to read people, emotional intelligence, um, the ability to think dispassionately when you have to, a, a lot of things go into it. And people may be born with certain talents, but these talents can be developed. And talents that are not there could also be developed. And uh, of course, when I finished my PhD in 97, and I started teaching executives soon after that, um, I wasn't always that effective at the time uh, because I thought I would go and just share the gospel. And it's not like that. It's not like that. All knowledge is contestable. Um, and secondly, the mode of sharing knowledge is, is really important. And the mode of sharing is engaging. Engaging. If someone disagrees, well, what's their suggestion? Can their suggestion stand up to scrutiny? And, and it's the mode of sharing that it's a craft um, to be able to, um, at that level, teach well, but, uh, and to help people to live with feeling that they've learned something that they can apply that they didn't know before. And if you, especially senior executives, you know, how, I mean, the, they are not used to sitting in a classroom. How can you keep them interested for three hours or even for six hours? There's a lot of learning that goes into how this could be done. Right. But also what I'm, you know, what I'm hearing here is there's the Janusian thinking, which happens between our own, within our own brain, like holding these opposing yes. uh, perspectives, but also out there, it sounds to me like you're allowing space for an Posing position to your position potentially to emerge am i right and you're allowing you're allowing yourself to explore that is that something you've you've had to get better yeah. at yeah i mean it's it, it yes and um another way to say it is how you think of your inter interlocutors if you like are they there to listen and learn what you say or are they there to challenge and advance what you say, well, it's both. And when you can keep those two things in mind, then you're, I think, a better teacher. I don't know how we started talking about teaching, but yes, you've asked me about my own experience. And of course, that's, that's you know, my job as a professor to research, to write and teach. And that, that's why we're drawing on those examples, I think. Yes, but what you're saying is very relevant because of course, that does not just apply to the teacher. It applies to the leader. Can the leader both have their followers listen and have their followers challenge, right? Yes, yes. And it's... I so mean, how can it, one be a leader and a follower at the same time almost? Yes, or a servant leader. That's why the idea of servant leadership is so popular because servant and leader are, you know, you get competing, uh, competing meanings from them and... You know, it, it, it's the perennial challenge of em empowerment and control. In order to get the best from people, they need to feel empowered. But you can't have an organization without control. That's why it's an organization. It's 500, 1,000, 10,000 people. How are they going to be coordinated? So it's empowerment and control at the same time and in different ways um, for different jobs for different types of people so if you run a bank and you you know you want to empower people the people who approve loans shouldn't be too empowered they should go through guidelines follow guidelines and boundaries if you are you know if you work in a nuclear plant you can't be too empowered otherwise you create havoc for society for anyone within hundreds of miles around you. And, and so it all depends. Um, but, but it's a dilemma, empowerment and control, and you need both. Yeah. Uh, another example of Janusian thinking, hold them both in your mind. And how, how can you achieve both? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Let's, let's dive into my favorite example from a book, and this is uh, Nar Narayana Health. Mm -hmm. um, yes. The... Um, Heart surgeon, I believe, who who was a Janusian thinker. Yeah. So, I mean, when I 
learned more about Narayana Health when I read up and I, I wrote a long case study on it in 2015 and I followed the company and then I included it in the book. I thought if I ever need um, heart surgery, that would be, you know, a strong candidate, not because it's cheap, but because, uh, I mean, it helps that I wouldn't have to pay $120,000, the US price of 30 to 50,000 euros, which is the European price. It would help that it's average of 2,000 US dollars at Narayana Health. Well, let's just, just pause there. I just want to, I just want to pause there because that is extraordinary. So just repeat those figures again, right? Because I think it's worth yeah. taking away. So, so Bloomberg reported in 2019 that Narayana Health uh, cost for open uh, heart surgery was around 2,000 US dollars. And they practice price discrimination, meaning that a few people who go there have no money at all yet. They will still operate on them. Or if they have insurance, they'll pay about $800 based on their insurance. Um, and, and if people who are, say, comfortable, wealthy go there, they'll pay five, $6,000. But on average, it's $2,000. Um, other hospitals in India, the cost is around $8,000. So we cannot attribute the low cost at Narayana Health simply to the fact that factors of production are cheaper in India because they do it at a quarter of the price and at similar or better levels of quality. Because, no, you pay $2,000 and it wouldn't be useful if you had higher chances of dying, right? Uh, But the 30-day post-mortality rate is 1.4%. In in America, it's 1.9%. So it's better than American uh, post-mortality rate. Um, in America, it's about 120,000 US dollars to do this surgery. And, and so, um, so Devi Shetty actually was trained um, in the UK. He was working in, here and he decided to go back to India um, because he saw too many of his countrymen, women and children dying because they didn't have money to pay for surgery. And he was lucky because, well, he was working in another chain in India. He was lucky because his father-in-law had the capital to help him start Narayana Health chain. And he started the chain. Um, Now there are 47 facilities and thousands of of beds. Um, And they increased their specialties from heart surgery to 17 or 18 different specialties, but the recipe is the same. High quality in terms of outcomes, very low cost. Um, And there are a few of these statistics um, in the book. And part of it is how they use their fixed assets. So we go back to economics 101, uh, economies of scale, Economies of scope, economies of learning. Uh, Economies of scale is the number of surgeries they do. Economies of scope is the sharing of central resources, such as equipment. So they use, for example, operating theaters for 18 hours a day with 15-minute turnarounds versus in the West, where they use maybe eight hours a day with 30 minutes turnaround. It's the same fixed cost, but if you use it more, you lower Um, the average cost. So economies of scale, economies of scope, economies of learning. That last one is really important. What it says is the more surgeries you do, the less mistakes you will make and the faster you can go. So surgeons at Narayana Health, they do about 30 surgeries per week. This works out at 36,000 surgeries in their career. If you calculate 25 years, uh, 48 weeks per year. So 36,000 surgeries a year per surgeon at Narayana Health. In the West, they do one-tenth of that. Hmm. And in India, half of that or less. And so the question is, if you have a complicated problem, 
with your heart, who would you like to do the surgery? Someone who's done thousands upon thousands, who's seen everything, who does 30 a week, or someone who does three to four a week. Yeah. I know who I would prefer. Right. Um, but then you ask, why do the surgeons do this? Um, couple of answers. Part of it is that their time is optimized because of job enrichment, meaning nurses do a lot more than they conventionally do in the West. So they do additional tasks to prepare the patients so the surgeon can focus their time on what they only can do. But there's a bigger factor, and the bigger factor is culture. And we've overused this idea of culture. Um, but in Narayana Health, we see how much it matters. Uh, the role model is Devi Shetty, the founder. He's a CEO. He's a multi-millionaire. Well, now he's chairman. He was the CEO for many years. Now he's chairman. He's a multi-millionaire because him and related parties, they own more than 50% of Narayana Health that's listed now uh, and worth hundreds of millions. So he doesn't need to work. And yet he does one or two surgeries every day. And he says he sees about 100 patients a day. Now, why would he do that? He's multimillionaire, chairman, but he does all of that. And you have to ask why. Why is really nothing to do with money? Is what he feels is the right thing to do. And when people see that, they, they are very inspired. And they're there because they want to save lives and they do save lives. Um, I mean, what other job can... Um, what other job can make someone feel like, like they've saved people from certain death? Right. Um, and that's why surgeons put what uh, psychologists call discretionary effort in their work. Yeah. But anyway, so there, there's, if you like, um, so, so we have economics 101, but what I say in the book is that doesn't really explain fully what's happening there. And I talk about the six principles of Janu strategy in application to Narayana Health. So the six principles are, first of all, you need a Janus strategist, someone who wants to do things differently, someone who sees the dominant answer and is not satisfied. And this is what Devi Shetty did when he saw the situation in India. Uh, so a general strategy is to coordinate everything you need to but, uh, but also yes. i think it, just to, just for me to fill in the blanks here for myself is he's he's thinking opposite it's like how can we make this really cheap and make it really good quality you know how can i be a practicing heart surgeon and the ceo it's just you see more of these examples right yes yes studying. more and more so he's actually his um desire was to make surgery affordable to de democratize heart surgery. Um, and in fact, Narayana Health also started an um, insurance plan with just a few pennies per month, a farmer can pay and then be covered. Um, and then they started practicing uh, price discrimination to make sure that people would get the surgery even if they didn't have enough money. Um, but yes, he saw the situation and thought high quality at the lowest cost. How can I do this? And then develop this um, system. Um, so the so be a Janus strategy is the one principle. The next one is align but embrace paradox. The third one is make dual strategic moves. Fourth one is use technology to both exploit and explore. Fifth one, design agile organization. Sixth one, leverage business networks. Each of these has a role to play, and I discuss all of those in relation to Narayana in the book. And this is really to say, yes, economics helps us to make the first approximation to an answer, economies of scale, scope, and learning, but it doesn't tell us exactly how it's done. And uh, I think those six principles help us to gain a bit more insights to how it's done. Yes, now, now I agree, and it's... Uh... Yeah, it's it's great you way that you the way that you lay them out in the book. The other thought that comes to me, and maybe we'll take a bit more of a dive into them, but 
is how much does this relate to this idea of a of abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset i was listening to a podcast recently and someone was talking about the fact that you know when we're kids we're in this scarcity mindset it's a sort of zero sum it's it's uh you know if, if i'm fighting with my brother there's limited resources for the family and and if i get one more sweet then then my brother's going to get one less sweet and, and we're sort of brought brought up in this scarcity mindset where there's only so much to go around but of course um we as human beings have this potentiality to create um you know a bigger pie right for everyone we 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 can we can have this abundant abundancy mindset yeah. that allows us to explore well what could be possible and allows yeah. us to hold these paradoxes in space and it's like yeah to what extent does this Janusian yeah. thinking sort of correlate with this idea of abundancy mindset yeah yeah so so i think the idea of uh, abundance mindset i think has found expression in different ways in for example the idea of synergies in business synergy is when you have two plus two equals five when two things work together to give you something uh, bigger. Also, an idea like Blue Ocean Strategy is, again, uh, similar in the sense that you are looking for creating unexplored business space rather than fighting over established and limited business space or demand or segment. Call it, call it what you will. So the idea is you create a pie rather than fight over someone else's pie. Um, and and, and um, this idea of Janusian thinking, if you like, helps you see alternatives. When we say paradox is generative, that's what we mean. It helps you see different, not only different angles to the problem, but reframe the problem in a different way. It's what Elon Musk did when he thought about how can we have reusable rockets, reframing the whole way of thinking about it. Um, there's no new laws of physics. It's the laws of physics we know, but is looking at the problem a different way, reframing the problem. Right. So exploit and explore, right? Exploit our existing understanding of physics, but yes. explore how we can yes. apply it differently. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. So you, you outlined the six principles there. Just, just diving into the Narayana health again. What might be another salient example of a principle in play there? Yeah. So um, one is, well, what we call an uh, agile organization. And, you know, agility is fashionable now. But what does it really mean? And in the book, I talk, for example, about the, the, my work with NASA and I discovered this historical example of the NASA pirates, a group of engineers who, you know, defied expectation, defied the dominant paradigm to code a new mission control for the shuttle. Because in the uh, mid eighties, NASA was still using the Apollo mission control and a mainframe design, which, you know, these, these young engineers thought wouldn't be good enough for the shuttle and they were right. But, but coming back to Narayana, it's, intentionally minimal bureaucracy, the flattest organization design uh, they could have, continuous improvement, sharing best practices. They have innovations uh, such as role enrichment for the nurses, even role enrichment for the family of the patients. They teach the family how to take care of patients mm. so they can release them sooner. And so they can make better use of the limited fixed assets they have, and wow, the that, that, are... that just 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 that just strikes me as a yeah. great example of the generative thinking. Because yeah, if you were yeah, if I mean, you would just focus on how do I reduce costs, yeah. you know, your mind might immediately go to uh, I don't know, like how do I get a cheaper hospital bed or cheaper lights or or get cheaper nurses. But that how can I do that and have superlative care? You know, then perhaps this idea of well, maybe we get the family involved like yeah yeah i mean what helps is that india is more of a family-oriented society so mm. you'd have problems trying to do this with all patients in other countries but you know if you can do this well the patient is happier because they don't have to be in a hospital longer than they have to the family is happier because they have access 
to their loved one and they can take care of them. And if they are trained well, shown what to do, it's all good. And if you think of why do, say, hospitals in the U.S. like to keep patients as long as possible? Uh, here's a clue. is not for their own best interest. You know, it's because insurance yeah. is paying and they want to milk it for all it's worth. Right. And, and, and so, um, I mean, there are established, you know, business networks that make difficult some of these innovations to be applied elsewhere. But um, um, uh, so another, another example is this principle, use technology to exploit and explore. And what we see at Narayana Health, on the one hand, they have really reliable diagnostic equipment. They don't necessarily have the best or most recent, they, they, they buy workhorses that they know they'll do the job, that they can work for many hours during the day. They can share them among different specialisms. And in, in that sense, they share the cost of the fixed asset um, and they reduce the average cost of each procedure. So, so for example, when I wanted to buy a printer, I didn't go for the most recent with Bluetooth this, that, and the other. I just needed a printer that will work. And I connect it with a cable and it always works. And that's great. And that's what they do. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they develop from scratch software like the, what they, they call it the Atma software. It's like SAP, but really customized to their business. And they have a group of um, coders you know, in India, there's thousands upon thousands of graduates in computer engineering every year. It's an abundant resource in India. And, and, and Narayana Health takes advantage of that. They built their own system that gives them daily profit and loss. Now think about that, daily profit and loss. They know exactly how many free surgeries they can give every day because it's there on, on their iPad. Um, and uh, so, so you see there, uh, Janusian thinking in terms of technology deployment, established technology workhorse versus state of the art technology at the same time to do different things. Um, and I mean, there are, there are others, um, others. I mean, I'll, we can go to other examples or... Well, yeah, no, no, no that, that gives us a good flavor of uh, what an extraordinary comp company that is. And it's certainly helping me to, you know, concretize this, this idea. Um, the other, the other aspects of this, and this is a bit of a leap now, but I found interesting was this, um, this acceptance within the creative process. And when we're thinking of this way of the role of the, of the subconscious, which I don't think we talk about a lot, you know, well, certainly yes, in sort of don't. most business contexts and, yeah, can you elaborate a little bit about the role of the subconscious in, in this start? Yes, thing? yes. So um, you're right. It's something we don't talk much about, and it's something I would like to research a bit more. And in fact, I want to write um, sort of a, an article on it um, soon. Um, the reason that Einstein got that insight is because his subconscious was already trained. It's because he spent years thinking about the issues and the challenges, or if that's Einstein or Darwin or Bohr. Uh, regular people with the same ideas might not get the same insights. So that is, other people holding the competing ideas that these scientists have held uh, might not get the same insights. And um, it's uh, so, so, so in the book, there's the example of uh, Mozart. Mozart wrote in a letter that he receives melodies when he walks around in Vienna and he remembers the ones he likes and then he commits them on paper. He doesn't know where they're coming from. But really, Mozart was playing the piano when he was six, seven years old. His subconscious is trained is receptive, is ready. 
And it's a similar idea that Kahneman talked about system one thinking, system two thinking. One is automatic, subconscious. The other is deliberative. And we operate every day with both systems. And we operate more with the automatic system than we care to admit. Many times we already decide and then we justify our decision with deliberative thinking, but we already know what we want to do. So this, and, and many times, you know, strategists or leaders, they may wake up with a great idea. But why are they having, why are they having that great idea? Why didn't it come to someone else? It's because they've been pondering it. It's because their subconscious or their conscious mind, well, both of them really, had been struggling with the challenges. And in psychology, there's also this idea called incubation effects. You can work on a problem. Um, maybe you don't find a solution if it's an intractable problem, you can, but you can spend time, then put it away. And then your subconscious goes to work on it. It's, it's, and, and then maybe in a few days, you get some insights. Your subconscious had been working on it and it sends you messages. We are going to say, well, how do we know it's not imagination? Well, uh, how do we know that what you say really happens? Well, it's hard to challenge Kahneman because he did many experimental studies and he showed experimentally that this automatic process does exist and it does affect our judgment more than we think. And there are other studies to do with the incubation effect. And we have the anecdotal evidence from Mozart and many others. And Einstein, he wrote a letter. There is an extract of Einstein's letter in the book. Um, and, and there's a lot of subconscious work. And you now the implication for strategists, if you like, is to set an intention and train their subconscious. And I know it's easier said than done, but um, I'm thinking more about how it could be done yeah but i think just the first step of acceptance of it and, and value valuing it right valuing yes. that walk in the park valuing the yeah uh, I mean, the time can... spent doing other things relaxing right all of this yeah you know it, it tends to get talked about in the sense that it's something we should be doing as a good for humanity and people in organizations almost as a humane with a humane motivation right we should be giving people space and time and so on but of it's course. interesting to cover it from this perspective that it may also greatly improve strategic decision making of course of course i mean now that i think of it maybe there's a reason archimedes came up with eureka in the bath right <laughs> right <Yes. laughs> he was relaxing so many people say they get insights um one organization theories that talked about the life cycle griner he talked about or um organizational life cycles he got the idea he said when he was driving in the rockies larry greiner his his idea on that has been ex exceedingly influential i mean there are many examples he was driving in the rockies i think was in the mountains it just came to him but why did it come to him he'd been struggling with the issues and his subconscious came up with a synthesis if you like yeah yeah. Also remember it most vividly from when I used to do, I was a coder early in my career and, and very often, you know, I'd be smashing the computer towards the end of the day and then, you know, I'd come in the next morning and there it was. Yeah. There yeah. it was, the yeah. solution. Yeah. Well, the, the, there's a reason and then we are beginning to understand why. And uh, we're, we, we are used to thinking of strategy as a rational, hyper-rational endeavor. Well, we need rationality and we also need um, creativity we also need to allow our subconscious to talk to us yeah but and i also think that this this correlates as well with um this idea that it has to matter right you know that it has to matter because we're not going to sit in that struggle right we're not going to expose ourselves to this comfort of of, of the opposite yeah. we're not going to sort of uh, presumably to some extent our social our subconscious is is driven by our desires and our motivations so our subconscious is not necessarily going to go to work on something um, that we don't care about. So, um, yeah, makes a lot of sense. So I think we are reaching. Yes, we hour, are. Richard. 
Um, thank you so much. It's been it's been fantastic. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. I hope people get a lot out of it. They can. Uh, I won't show the book again because it, it whites out on on this screen. But perhaps you can. Uh, Janice Strategy available from all good uh, bookstores. All good Amazon stores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, well thank you richard it's yeah. been a pleasure speaking with you and you know we we could chat again i mean this yeah thank so you much, for the yeah. invitation yeah, and no, thank you i've enjoyed it and i've enjoyed it too thanks louisos and uh yeah oh and we should mention your um iracleus.org right um uh, which we'll put a link to in the description as well your website Yes. Thanks that's again. Great. Thank you very Have much. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.